0: listening to the curiosity collective podcast i'm arpita and i'm deepika so the episode we are airing this time is actually one that was meant to air in april but as things happened at a rapid pace and the covid 19 lockdown was put into place we at the curiosity collective felt that it would be more appropriate to speak to the times to the immediate questions that came to us collectively So of course, we shifted our focus to discuss the topic of care and connection during COVID, and then to lockdown and labour during the last few months. But 2020 is really turning out to be a bit of an epic year. It's barely been half the year, and as a country, we found ourselves facing not only COVID, but also other serious disasters like the two cyclones on our two coasts, the locust attacks which swept across the country, and the humanitarian crisis surrounding the migrating labourers, And then, of course, the threat of quakes in the north of the country, to say the least. What's interesting is that in many ways, these are all, including the pandemic, very complex outcomes of human impact on the planet, as we've been discussing in our previous episodes. And all of these situations combined are presenting a narrative of crisis, which is telling us that our current way of doing things is just not working. And that's why we decided to go back to this theme of the frugal city for this month, Because as the fourth month of the crisis rolls out, many of us have started wondering, if not this, then what? And the two episodes within this theme are, in our opinion, opening one such door into reflecting on and beginning to understand new ways of doing and being. We hope you find yourself nodding along as you listen. Happy listening.
1: Okay, I'm getting the feeling that a lot of our episodes are beginning with you traveling to some place or the other. (laughs) This time it's Himachal and in the summers and you're in Himachal and I'm in Bangalore sitting in the sweltering heat and I receive these beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous snaps of the Himalayan range and of course followed by that house you were at beer right yeah. i mean that house was really really beautiful it was this mud house and and i think you sent me a cascade of snaps there was there was the high ceiling this angle of light distance shot between Deodars, everything right
0: yeah so i'd gone up to visit an old family friend who's built a mud house in beer and uh, i've been hearing stories about this house for the last 6 years it was constructed by this woman called didi contractor who's an architect and she's uh, now 93 years old, but you know, she did this when she was 86. Wow. Yeah, it's quite crazy. Um, and I was listening to her interviews because I was curious about her life. And she mentions uh, someone called Chitra Vishwanath, who's an architect based in Bangalore. Um And Chitra started uh, biome environmental solutions in the early 90s and now builds, you know, on the principles of sustainability in cities and Which we've been
1: discussing forever, of course. Yeah,
0: and I was curious to know what that means and, you know, how does that actually happen? So that's what brought me to Chitra.
2: So Chitra Vishnath here, I'm an architect. I practice from Bangalore, part of a firm called Biome Environmental Solutions, which I was kind of instrumental in starting in 1990 as Chitra Vishnath Architects because lack of any imagination to give a name. The beginning of my practice was uh, more of economical in nature and not ecological because uh, 1990 was a watershed year in Indian economy itself. The economy opened up and there were loans available for middle-class and the middle-class started making its own homes. And there was also at hatko a great priority given for working with alternative materials and especially what Laurie Baker espoused, the architecture of frugality, which is what uh, I was much uh, influenced by rather than just his way of construction, more of frugality, like build just as much as you need.
0: You know, when she was talking about uh, Laurie Baker, as soon as she mentioned his name, you know, I thought of you because I know how much you love his work.
1: I can't remember when I first heard of him, but I think I've been sort of secretly nurturing the idea of, I don't know, building something, anything by his (laughs) principles. Uh, Well, so Laurie Baker was called the Gandhi of architecture. And this was partly because he was a Gandhian and partly because of his Quaker roots, uh, you know, Simplicity was part of his life. And this basically meant that he was speaking of building as per need and not greed. And I love his story. You know, he he's he was this British man who walked into India one fine day and found his degree of, of architecture completely useless because he had grown up in a temperate region, right? And the tropical region, tropical India completely confounded him. It was just so, so different that he was humbled into learning from the locals and so that's how localization happened. You know, it wasn't some principle he arrived at. It just happened. And and these fanciful terms that we use, like, you know, cost effectiveness and energy efficient architecture, that just came naturally with that. Yeah.
0: And I think, you know, what you said about need versus greed, um, it's something that Chitra said is why she also chooses to build with mud, because it it's in line with the principles of Lori Laurie, Laurie Baker's, you know, philosophy and building and it allows for so much because you're going back to simpler forms and necessity versus, you know, wanting to exploit and extract more and more.
2: The essence of frugality is that you build what you need, but you don't do something extra at all. So you build it beautifully. So the structures are beautiful. The mason feels good. We all feel good that it's built well. And it's also much more honest. You really see what you're building and how it is built. And even if a block gets bad, you can replace it with another block, which you can't do in a plastered, painted building. You don't know what's happening inside. So that way it is better. I and most of us would prefer to do most of the work in the cities, to bring the city into the ecological schema. So this has been our concern most of the time, and we're doing it in the smallest possible plot too. And we are doing it for small families who are not going to be able to sit there and if small crack develops, take little mud and plaster it. She was
0: describing to me what those mud blocks are and they're called CSEBs, which is short for Compressed Stabilized Earth Block, which is largely a mud block, but it has about 5 or 10 percent of cement that's mixed in to act as a stabilizer.
1: And where is this mud coming from? I'm guessing Laurie Baker so. Locally?
0: Very locally, so from your own land, you know, on the foundations of of your house. And if not, then as close to that as possible because the idea is not true, you know, shapes across half the country to get more and more
2: soil. First thing we try is that we'll build with soil if available. And then we explore that and uh, also different soil can be modified. Now, this doesn't happen with any other material. So you have a soil and then you start looking at, oh, there's Um, quarry dust available or fly ash is available and there's lime available if we mix what happens to that so we've used in bhopal mostly with uh, fly ash and lime and soil because the soil was very different the building is gray rather than brown like here but in uh, tadoba you got soil of different kind What's nice about it that it's not something which is just intuitive. We don't pick up and say, I'll make this, which is what happens in traditional mud. Because that comes from uh, a long association of working with it. But here you require science. You have to get the soil tested. You have to do a lot of different mix in the lab.
1: So this must really result in unique looking buildings because, I mean, obviously the soil is unique to the landscape.
0: Yeah, and she's built across the country. And, you know, depending on where she is, of course, and the buildings look different because the soil and its quality and color is different. And you can see that in the construction. Um, But she was talking about something that was even more interesting, which is um, embodied energy costs and explaining what that meant.
2: Embodied energy is the amount of energy required to make a product. So making, let's say, an earth block The maximum embodied energy comes from the cement which goes in. Otherwise, it's the soil which you have taken from your own basement. You have calorific value there. There are about six people making the block. So that's there. And the machine keeps reusing it. You make at least one lakh blocks and then you only service it. So it can be used for 10, 20 years.
1: Okay, I'm not sure I got that. So how, you know, usually we look
0: at costs in terms of money, right? So you look at how much a can of paint costs or how much a brick costs or what that bag of cement is going to mean and how many you need. But now imagine a parallel scale where you're measuring as per energy and not money. So that same, you know, above paint, that same brick, that same bag of cement, how much energy is gone into making it? Where is it coming from? What is that transportation cost involved? So everything is built into that energy cost and that's how you come up with a different and parallel way of looking at it.
1: Okay, so it's a different measure. I get that. Uh, but what are you achieving out of figuring the energy cost?
0: You well, know, Lots of times money doesn't actually reveal the cost of something. I mean, it's a transaction but all those hidden costs that, you know, ecologically you're looking at what it's, you know, what, what that's resulting in, none of that is factored in. And by looking at the embodied energy cost of anything and it's, you know, every material we use in our life, it's not just construction materials. All of that gives you that bigger picture, which I think that simple money transaction loses. And she was using the example of paint to talk about what the difference is between embodied energy and a mud brick to explain that.
2: In paint, there are a lot of chemicals and everything which goes in, which is in a factory, which would be somewhere beyond and it, you'll be transporting it to the place. So all those are different energies which get cumulated, into a product. So that's what's embodied energy. So I'm just comparing leaving a wall, unfinished, unplastered and unpainted compared to just a coat of paint. That will be the difference.
0: And in her conclusion, she was saying that the embodied energy of paint is actually 102 times more than that of an earth block, you know, that you make from your own soil.
1: Yeah, I think that drives the point home. I mean, then you understand the difference between how something is costed in, you know, through money and through energy.
0: Yeah. And when she said paint, you know, the first thing I thought of was my house in Mumbai where every year after the monsoon, you know, the houses, the walls will get moldy and they'll swell and the ceiling will drip. And, you know, you're already scheduling that annual paint and refurbishment because you have to. And it's money that you just plan for in the year because you know it has to be done. But at no point have I said, you know, why does this need so much investment in this way?
1: It is seriously odd that we haven't thought of this before.
0: Yeah, and you're going to love what she said next, which is about frugality and and how she defines that within her kind of architecture.
2: The building should be especially built where we should know whether that uh, development can provide for its water can treat its own waste in the plot where they are, provide for most of its energy, provide for biodiversity. These are four, five things. And provide for a little bit of food too. These are five elements. Let's put it in the bylaws. Show us this would happen in your plot. Then you build as much as you want. Not on the basis of width of the road, the land size, so then this is the FSI and you can build that much. And then you build. And you leave it. You leave it for five years, ten years. The prices just keep going up, and you you you're just uh, making profit on something very invisible economics, which is That's you know so so exploitative. Yeah, it's exploitative economics, which is how, which is why it's not working.
1: Okay, this I do understand. Sustainability. Um, so basically, what she's saying is that. Um, we're not building as individuals apart from the world that we live in. We're building as creatures very much embedded within the ecosystem, right?
0: Yeah, and I, I love that reminder that we're part of the ecosystem. I know I forget, you know, often, especially when you're sitting in, in your own house and stuff, you don't think that you're connected to that larger world. But I think the house reflects that. And she was talking about how you need to give back and look at yourself as part of that larger space. And talking about it actually in the context of her 800-square-foot basement.
2: What it does, it's, it tells you the carrying capacity. So if you have done a foundation, the soil which you got, let's say 100 CFT of soil you got, so that means with that only certain amount of walling can you do. That means your foundation or your basement is telling you only this much of construction should you do in this land, because that's the amount of soil you got. More than that is being, you're bringing material from elsewhere. And so we, that's why we talk about carrying capacity. So once we say you got the earth from your land, so you decide how big you're making, then you decide how big a basement you make. Or you say, yeah, you were ready to give the extra soil to somebody else. Fine. So you, used, let's say you used all of it. So from our basement of about eight hundred square feet, we made thousand five hundred, and another house of about eight hundred square feet. So let's say two thousand square feet you could make from eight hundred square feet two thousand. But so you decide on that. You did hundred square feet. You can do. 200 square feet of house. That's the maybe a rule of thumb you could take. Then you decide on how much water falls on your terrace and how much water will you be able to collect and stay within that parameter. And then do you have land to treat your wastewater? Do you have land to recharge? If you start looking at this whole concept, you decide on how much should you be building on the land. Then it's, not, then it's like any animal which builds its burrow. How much it can dig, it goes in. How, how big a nest can you make for the three chicks which will be growing? That's all you make. You don't make more than
1: I really like the way she's put that, planning for a home just like any little forest dwelling creature would. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a new way of looking at homes. And yeah, like as you said, I love the idea of being part of that ecosystem.
1: Yeah, but I think the the question that's sort of going to pop into everyone's mind is, you know, what is the cost? And, and I hear mean, obviously, the money kind. And um, is it much, much more expensive?
0: It's not actually, and it's something Chitra said they had to actively work on because they didn't want it to be this alternative you know, construction. They wanted to have um, competitive and comparable costs to a main street building, and that's what they did then.
2: So let's take, Deepika, the, the first one about cost. It's not more expensive than a designed building. So you can't compare it with a building that, uh, built by a mason, head mason. You can't compare it to that. And a design building and this is an apple-to-apple comparison. So so that's what it should be. So a design building will certainly be a little more expensive than uh, what a mason does because they wouldn't use the kind of inputs a design brings in. And that design brings in inputs which would be better for your life in terms of light, ventilation, etc. Minimum of that. So this is not more expensive, which is what we have always felt, biome has always tried to do, is that it cannot be more expensive. If at all, it should be cheaper. It's cheaper in terms of maintenance. It's the same cost as a conventional building, because if you're going to make it more expensive, it is uneclogical. So through about 10 years of work where one had studied the materials which go in, how much labor goes, et cetera, we could come up to something called an item rate estimate. So we made our own estimates. We could give that to the client after a design is done. It helped, it helped for the idea of this kind of construction spreading because it also provided an ethical base. Here, it's not only the design you get, you get a team to build, but also you would know how much you would spend and where you're spending and you're monitored. And this was very important. And to us, it felt that that is the only way an alternative construction can become something which is possible for most to adopt because it follows something which is in the mainstream.
1: So I think I'm now getting a hang of the kind of architecture Chitra is speaking of. But, you know, I'm really curious, how did she even get there? How did she arrive at these principles?
0: She's had a really interesting life and, you know, she grew up literally all over the map from Banaras to Nigeria to, you know, Ahmedabad and back.
2: I was uh, born in Banaras. My father was teaching in BHU, and we were South Indians there. So we always had very young kids who were studying in BHU who had come from South, coming home. So that was an open house for in fact, on Sundays and Saturdays, there are more people than the family who would be eating. You know? Then we went to Nigeria and our house was again very open for everybody to walk in. And, and my mother would, was an extremely good cook, so there was everybody eating.
0: She was saying that, you know, that idea of having an open home where lots of people came into, that was one thing. But SEPT, which is the Center for Environmental Planning and Technology, it's where she studied and it's one of the best institutes of its kind um that also formed and shaped her idea of how she looked at shared spaces
2: the shared spaces happened through the architecture of sept school of architecture where no classroom was a classroom where you couldn't go you walked to a classroom through other classrooms you stayed in a in a we called the studio you stayed you worked in a studio but you could look at a studio below You could shout at your juniors or your seniors about the music they played, or you could also see what they're doing. Their own class, if you're interested, you could just go sit. I think that has remained in us. And you'd find that as a very common feature in our homes and stuff, that you could see anywhere. It was difficult for people to accept that. But our house is also very open. We could see it from... Living room to my son's room, and if you went in, in our rooms, you had mezzanines. So, this is, I think, from the, the built aspect of it, is from Ahmedabad, from the studies there. Just want to move and see everybody.
1: But when did Biome actually come to be?
0: So, Biome started in the early 1990s, and she started it, you know, after she met her husband at Sept, and he was also a student there, and they fell in love and got married and moved to Bangalore. Um, and you know at the time none of her clients wanted to experiment with a mudblock house so they decided that they'd do it themselves and you know they chose a plot of land and built their own house and now live there together
2: we were lucky to build our own house and when I when we came to see the plot and we saw our neighbor constructing with and this beautiful red earth which was there we decided we should build with earth blocks. And we were very keen to build with earth blocks, but it was very difficult to convince clients to do it. First, we had no prior experience. So we decided to do our own house and we decided to make a basement because I knew that the earth required will not be enough coming out from foundation. So we did a basement. I call it the worst basement, but the first one, so we learned a lot from doing that we got earth enough to not only build our house and also a small house nearby where we couldn't do basement. I I don't know if I went about seriously that I have to do mud or something, but we got uh, sucked into it, happily sucked into The whole effect of it, the whole challenge that you have to get a soil which is right. And Every time you go anywhere now, I keep looking at soil and get very thrilled about the kind of soil is available. And again, it's so versatile that it may not be the soil, what it looks like in Bangalore, but elsewhere, then it's a challenge. How do I use that?
1: So you actually interviewed her in her office space and visited her home, right? Um, So aesthetically and spatially, did it feel different? And was it a lot like the beer place? Um,
0: It's very different from most places I've been in, but it actually evoked the sensation that I had when I was in that house in Beed, which is of spaciousness. And you know when your bare feet make contact with the mud floor, that that grounding that comes with it. And I think it's also that interplay of light and the use of light in air. So it always feels like there's flow within the house. Um, and she was saying in her office also and, and pointed that out to me that how you look at volumes and how volume can increase a sense of space. So while a plot might be small and might be whatever, 800 square feet, Um, the actual volume of it is much larger.
2: The small plot can't be seen as area. It's better to see it as volume. That thing we were sure, that we need to see volumes of... You see, this room is an area, okay? Now, when you see our office, it's a volume. If you see, area is just about, say, 1,000 square foot, but the volume is much larger. And the the notion of space to be brought through volumes, rather than by areas. Everybody comes and says you want a 14 by 14 bedroom, but our house has eight by 10 bedroom, but the volume is higher. At a certain place with the sleeping space is only eight feet, at the other place is 14 feet. So the heights become more and you don't feel claustrophobic. So it's... Uh, and the smaller yeah experiential stuff and and the light comes from different ways so modulation of light is essential in these places
1: yeah I like the idea of exploring volume alongside area because I mean a house is also it's empty spaces right it's not just the walls
0: yeah and that effect is incredible I mean I went up to the upper level of her office and there's this huge bank of windows um, on the left and it looks out onto trees and there's a The space outside there is reflective of, you know, the space inside and there's an intermingling of that
1: outer and inner world. So as I was listening to Chitra, I was thinking how, you know, Bangalore's changed a lot since the last decade or so. And it's gone from being the sleepy little, you know, small residential kind of space to now increasingly having a lot of high rises. Right. So did Chitra speak to this? How do we begin to deal with this sustainably? she did actually and the easy answer is that it's possible
0: but the question that she flipped back to me was you know what is your reason for building that high rise again you know in that question of need versus greed is it for your own need and your family or is it an investment and something that you know then that money is being made of and then looking at that in the context of it being ecological or not and what that cost is
1: well yeah I mean because we do hear of how many of these apartment blocks are actually empty because these are houses made for investment Uh, well, my second thought was this: uh, considering the city that's already standing all around us, I mean, it is largely made of concrete, right? So, now what? We talked about that,
0: and actually, her response was encouraging because there's simple things that we can do to sort of transform, you know, even these concrete blocks into ecosystems.
2: We are so blessed. We are in tropical climate, so put plants, put trees. The basic, which requires the least amount of uh, intervention, least amount of uh, financial problems with you, plant trees, plant, uh, plant anything. From the terrace, don't leave the terrace grey, make it green. And that's, anybody can do it. It reduces urban flooding because the plants will take up and it creates a space for biodiversity, for pollinators to grow. You, just, you don't, don't worry. Put soil and let grass grow, let wildflowers grow. Don't work on it. It requires that uh, during construction, you do a good job to allow for water to move away, which is very basic, good construction, I think. And you would make a huge difference in the city. I'm not asking about that the building should look fantastic, but the building should be amenable for biodiversity. And that would change the way uh, people would feel. You see a bird, you see a monkey also, you feel happier than seeing just a brick wall or a a glass wall. So I think it's important that we bring in biodiversity. So it's very important in the future that we bring in more. Trees and bring in more uh, animals in our midst. On our terrace, you, you just pick up a pot, a real ceramic WC from which is thrown everywhere, put it with soil there, you can grow anything you feel like. It's important that we start doing that. We work with soil. You have to start creating soil, so composting, as well as putting plants. I think these two things are future
0: when she was describing green spaces and green roofs, you know, I was thinking about how France in uh, March 2015 had legislated this. So, rooftops on new commercial buildings um, have to have either have to either be covered in solar panels or in plants, and like green basically. And the idea is that a green roof is able to have that isolating effect. You know, it can reduce the amount of energy you need to heat or to cool. It retains that rainwater, you know, it's encouraging birds and butterflies. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I've been trying to do with my terrace. Yeah. And that's why I love your terrace, because it just feels like it's thriving with different sorts of life forms. And I was thinking of you when I was on her terrace, because it's completely green and she has these blue discarded water tanks where, you know, she's got these mini trees. And was saying that, you know, they grew rice on their roof for two years. Can you grow rice on your roof? I mean, <laughs> I've never heard of it before. wouldn't standing have. water. Yeah, I would have thought so, but there's clearly different ways of doing it. And they had enough that they need to buy rice for two years.
2: So looking at it as an ecosystem, and we don't see humans as only parasitic. Could they be useful? So, One of it is the way we built. The future we are looking at is, in fact, even going beyond the use of mud blocks alone, but looking at use of waste from the city. The city as a quarry rather than city as something which is taking materials from the outlying areas and making itself. Because we need to and we do break buildings. But we are right now looking at it only as a waste, but that could be a resource. And it's not something that we have come up with. It's it's a thought process which is going on everywhere and we need to be incorporating waste into the building and create the built itself as something which would always be available for future as a quarry. Break a building and then you make a new building and from the same material or from some other buildings which is broken but it's it should be a space for itself. So the city should become a space where it holds its own waste and uses it for constructing itself.
1: The idea of the city constructing itself from its own past, I mean, that's very interesting. And I think we're in the absolute opposite direction right now. So how do we begin to change that?
0: Well, it's a direction Chita said she wants to move to. And, you know, she said ultimately doing away with that title of architect.
2: What architecture gives you is the chance to converse and to me, that's becoming more important to be able to talk to people because through design, you can talk and you can see what they're picking up and how they're going to respond and, how, and you can affect lives. That's, that's the most interesting part. And that's part of being in the earth. And I don't think it needs to be that you have to build with earth. The material you use, is, it plays a very small role if you can make with any material an ecosystem that is better i'd rather be called an architect of an ecosystem which is what i would because then it, i would make I, it would make me work harder but that's better than just saying earth architect how is the insert of a building is part of is a positive part of the ecosystem rather than it being something which is taking everything fresh and throwing out waste if we can do that more and more as architects, then in fact the whole profession of architecture itself should slowly vanish and should become part of ethos of everybody. You know, I can build a house and this is what I have to do. And it's very simple things. And I make spaces which I can share with others rather than just make for ourselves and put these locks and keys and... you. Even if you have extra, but then you don't share it. It's not fair. So that's the space which I want to move to.
1: I have to admit that while what she's describing sounds beautiful, I don't know, don't you feel it sounds slightly utopian? Because, I mean, we're sitting here surrounded by concrete, right? You know, there is
0: more to it than that. And, you know, things are changing. And some of the things she was telling me about Bangalore, I heard for the first time.
2: There are about 7,000 buildings in Bangalore, which are built with earth, with stabilized earth. That's the largest concentration of earth buildings in the world, in one city. And we don't talk about it. And there's so many people who are building. And now in this city, you have at least 10 entrepreneurs who are making blocks and selling. They have seen that as a possibility. And now it satisfies me so much that you get into a little lane and you see one little house coming up with these blocks, which they bought off the shelf. And some of them are so good, they're using all sorts of waste and making the blocks and selling it. So this is, this is what's important, that it's becoming a common lingo rather than it becoming like, I need to see some 100,000 ho- homes of mud blocks. No, it's more important that it becomes something which people use it. It's ira- readily available as an alternative.
1: Bangalore has 7,000 buildings made of mud. <laughs> By these Laurie Baker Chitra principles, yes. that is just, yes. yeah. that's, that's just amazing. I would have never guessed that, no. Yeah, I wanted to stick
0: little like pins on them and do a walking tour and yeah, see what the city looks like from that angle. But you know, when I was sitting there and listening to Chitra talking about these ideas of frugality, I was thinking about a conversation we've had, you know, about how that word, it evokes a sense of having less. So there's an association actually for with it being less and almost poverty in some ways. But when I was in that mud, house and her office and even the one up in beer, there's a sense of abundance there. There's something very generous about being in a space that, you know, uses light in that way or material in that way and, you know, all that greenery. And it's strange because, you know, the aspiration is to have more and, you know, sort of look posh and fancy and all of those things. But the sensation that these spaces evoke is is actually that. It's that it's that abundance that we're all seeking in many ways. But You know, if we could experience and connect with that, it makes so much more sense to me. And that's a city that I would live in and would proudly call frugal.
2: So I really want to see the city as an ecosystem. And uh, it's a possibility, I feel. So city as a forest and not by just planting trees, but planting them sensitively and understanding all sorts of things. And so I want to see sparrows back. I want to see a lot more uh, butterflies and bees in the city, residing in the city rather than the outskirts. So would like to really see it that way. I want to see a lot more shared spaces. I want to see people sitting outside which is so good here but we still don't do. I want to see a lot more uh, benches on the road and where people are using it rather than um, cafes only. I wanted more, even more of equity. Mm -hmm. The whole scene. I would like to sometimes think of it as going back to a stage where it's more like an agora. Some of just snatches of philosophy, but uh, what Socrates said I really like is that if possible, people are able to converse more. And so if it's one-to-one conversation, I'd get to know what you're thinking of what I'm saying rather than being in, in, the, in the room or writing a book and that, that's what people are going to be able to see. So if that's possible, it's so much better. If we can make more spaces. Um, I want a city where the young people, especially women, are out, even at 12 in the night alone. That will be the best city I'd really like to be him.
0: To know more about earth architecture and building with mud visit www.biome-solutions.com In our next episode we chat with S. Vishwanath Chitra's partner and another member of the Biome family Famously known by his online moniker Zen Rain Man he speaks to us about how he got hooked onto issues related to water and rainwater harvesting in particular Don't forget to listen in at www.thecuriositycollective.org This episode has been made with the support of Srinidhi Raghavan and produced by the Bangalore Recording Company.